Second Chronicles chapter 34, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles as we continue our study through Second Chronicles together, probably this week, and my assumption would be, Lord willing, probably next week we'll finish up our study through Second Chronicles together and then continue to move on in our journey through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, some really great uh, things to see there as well. But Second Chronicles, we've been looking at the different reigns of the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, and at this point in time, we are just within a short window. We'll see as we finish up the book. Probably next week, the southern kingdom is about to fall uh, to Babylon. God's judgment really has, in a sense, been determined against the southern kingdom of Judah because of the evil things they've been doing and their rebellion against God. The hand of judgment is already against them, and nothing is going to be able to turn that away at this point. It would be not just of God uh, if he did not punish uh, the nation at this point in time, uh, even as it would not honestly be just or righteous of God if he would not judge and punish our nation and not judge and punish the world. Uh, in a very soon time to come. Uh, Certainly we recognize as we look what's happening around us uh, that the days are getting darker and darker and it's almost as if you can read your Bible and watch what's happening on the news and recognize uh, that time is measured morally from God's perspective and the very things the Word of God predicted uh, would happen hundreds, thousands of years ago are taking place in rapid pace like the birth pains of a woman, uh, and it's about to give birth and delivery to the judgment of God upon this world. And so all the more reason why it's important for us to to be ready uh, as the Lord's followers, ready to escape by the grace of God, thankfully, in the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, the judgment of God that's coming upon this world, and those who've rejected Jesus, uh, thankfully, will be spared from that But it should give us incentive to want to reach the world around us as well, certainly. And what's interesting is we look at these last few chapters of 2 Chronicles, and as the judgment is about to come against the people of Judah, the nation of Judah, we see that there's one last wave of, if you would, spiritual revival, sort of a a spiritual awakening takes place one more time. In some ways, it, uh, who knows, maybe foreshadows kind of what the Lord does many times that before his judgment comes, uh, there's sort of one last window where God breathes uh, the work of his spirit uh, through uh, people and sort of awakens uh, individuals spiritually. There's sort of one last sweep that God takes to try and draw as many possible uh, into right relationship with him before his judgment must come. And here we see in the reign of young Josiah now another spiritual awakening take place in a very dark time. The nation is not doing well. There's a lot of sin and corruption going on. But now we see another good king come to the throne, King Josiah, and God uses him to bring a great spiritual awakening or a reform uh, to some degree, we might say, uh, among the nation at this time. So chapter 34 of Second Chronicles tells us that Josiah, verse 1 it says, was eight years old, it says, when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. So like many of the uh, other kings, Josiah had quite an extensive reign. His father only reigned two years. We saw at the end of chapter 33, his father Ammon. Uh, Josiah has a reign that lasts over three decades. And again, as I said before, just really difficult sometimes for us to wrap our head around the reality of someone being a national leader for 31 years, not just for four years or, oh my goodness, for eight long years, but for 31 years, God allows this man to be a national ruler over the people of Israel. And what's even more unique, if you didn't take notice of it in the the reading there in verse 1, look when he begins his reign, it says that Josiah began his reign, verse 1, when he was eight years old he became king now the reason he becomes king at eight years old we know from chapter 33 verse 25 the last verse was because his father Ammon was assassinated 
he was put to death by a group of conspirators. Remember, uh, Ammon was a very evil man. We're told of his short reign from verse 21 down through verse 25 in the previous chapter uh, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, that he sacrificed carved images, that he did not humble himself. That is when God convicted him that he was living wrong and that he was doing evil in his practices as a king, that he was stubborn that he was rebellious, that as he exercised his free will to refuse to submit to God, he sort of put the stiff arm out towards God, and that never works. The Bible says, woe to him who strives against his maker. You never win when you wrestle with God. Uh, you, can, you can do it a long time, but ultimately you lose. Uh, and, and Ammon continued to wrestle against God. He would not humble himself. Uh, and ultimately that led to him, it says, just hardening his heart, trespassing more and more, And then ultimately that rebellious life against God, that evil life led to his own self-destruction. And living a life in rebellion to God only ends up with that result. It's a life that is just self-destructive. It never resolves any problem. It never ultimately brings any good. Uh, When man lives in rebellion to God, it just ultimately is a self-destructive path. And that's what happened. Two people, it seems, uh, some conspirators conspired against him and he was assassinated And he only had a very short reign of two years. Now, because his reign was short and he was assassinated at this time, his son, who was the heir to the throne, only eight years old, is now put into the place of reigning at eight years old. Now, I hope he had a good cabinet around him, uh, a group of advisors to help him out in the process. Again, eight years old, that's probably what, like, I have older children now, probably like third grade, maybe. So imagine a third grader becoming a, a national ruler. I mean, what do you think about? I mean, you declare that the national food is Cocoa Puffs. And uh, I mean, just uh, I mean, the things that would be in your mind at eight years old. But this young man, what we're going to see, really had quite an incredible testimony. Look at verse two, what it tells us about him. This is a summarization of his life as a whole over that 31 year reign. And as he grew into a man, it says verse two, that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father, David. Now remember David was many, many generations ago and not really his legitimate father, literally, but, but his father, many, many generations down his great, 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 great grandfather. The idea David was, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now, that's a summarization, you might say, of a good life. There's a perfect description of a life lived well. Someone who does what's right in the sight of the Lord. They walk in the ways of godly examples who went before them, and they live a faithful life to God. They consistently continue to walk with God on the straight and narrow. And they don't get distracted by temptation. They don't sort of become inconsistent and take detours for a while spiritually and wander over here to the right and then take an exit ramp into sin for a while over here on the left. But they just stay on the straight and narrow, walking faithfully with the Lord. And this to me, as you think about that, that is the summarization of the life of this young man, Josiah, who comes to the throne at eight years old. What not only makes that marvelous just for any person, but makes really marvelous is when you remember the upbringing that he had. Remember, we talked just a moment ago and we saw it last week. Who was his father? Ammon. His father was one of the most wicked men in the history of the nation of Israel. His father was an ungodly man. He cared nothing for the things of the Lord. His father uh, lived in evil ways. He refused to humble himself before the Lord. He continued to trespass more and more. And this is what what, uh, Josiah was exposed to. This was his upbringing. Now, if anyone could be a poster child for the victim excuse mentality of, look, I turned out this way or I lived this way or I became a, you know, a messed up child or individual or I make all these bad decisions and I have all these you know, poor life choices because this was the environment I was raised in and these were the horrific things I was exposed to. And so therefore, I had no option. I'm a victim. Sorry, I turned out the way that I did and that I'm a mess and a rebel myself and I live out of control and sinful and evil and selfish. Uh, Josiah could have proclaimed that. Uh, But the interesting thing is he chose not to do that. And I emphasize the word he chose. 
not to do that. Because Josiah is a beautiful example, we'll see, that despite a child's environment or their upbringing, which can have harmful effects, don't get me wrong, I understand, I work with individuals, you know, I, I've, like you, you know, seen individuals, been exposed and, and traumatized by some really harmful things. I've seen people grow up in, you know, families where their mother and father make a lot of poor choices that cause hurt and harm to them and kind of trip them up and stumble them in their thinking and and cause them maybe to question God's existence or because maybe they had parents who were completely not only just disinterested in God, but maybe they just they, they hated the things of God and they just kind of projected that experience upon their children. And, and that's a tough thing. I certainly understand that it has its influence, but it doesn't have to dictate ultimately what becomes of a person's life. Because Josiah had quite a ugly uh, environment in his upbringing. He did not have a very good father at all. And yet, nonetheless, he chose by an act of his will to still live a good, healthy, and a God-honoring life. And that should be an incredible encouragement. You know, let me say to you this evening, do not let your past, your childhood, your upbringing, your experiences, the parents you had, don't let those things dictate who you ultimately become. You let God determine who you ultimately become. You have a free will and you have a choice. In the same way we saw in our study through these kings together that there were times where there were really good godly kings and godly fathers and then their kids would be absolute rebels and reprobates, right? And they would reject everything good and wonderful that was set before them as an example and and that they experienced and they would choose to take a path to evil and exercise their free will. Well, the same thing works if you had a bad start. You can have a good finish. Don't buy into this victim mentality. Don't buy into this that you have to turn out a certain way or you have an excuse. You don't have an excuse. You have an opportunity set before you to be who God wants you to be and you have a heavenly father who can replace perfectly everything maybe that an imperfect human father did not provide for you. And I've seen many, many wonderful testimonies of individuals like Josiah who chose instead, like verse 2 says, to do what was right in the sight of the Lord. That's how you live a good life. Do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Don't say, well, what's right in my sight? What's right in other people's opinion and their sight? They say this is right and this, what's right in God's sight? What does God's word say? What does God say is right and wrong? You determine that in your decisions, you're going to make good decisions. You be someone like uh, Josiah, who he didn't have a great example in a father, so he looked for another godly example, David. It says he walked in the ways of his father. In other words, there are always godly examples out there. Maybe your own father, your own mother, you don't have a good example. Well, you know what? Then, Then find someone else that's a good example. There are plenty of good godly examples. Find a spiritual mother, a spiritual father, and someone else that you can emulate. And like he did, walking in the ways of his father David, a man who had a heart after God, and be someone who makes a decision and a commitment and carries it out. He says he didn't turn to the right or the left. That is, he made a decision and he was a committed individual. Be dedicated. Don't be wishy-washy. Don't be somebody who wavers back and forth. You know, determine to live for God and do it. And walk it out. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And just keep putting one foot in front of the other and walk that out and carry it out. And you will experience the good fruit of a life well lived like Josiah did. Now look as it begins to unfold how his life kind of lived itself out. Verse 3 says, for in the eighth year of his reign. Now he started at eight years old, right? The eighth year of his reign, he's how old? 16. Oh, good math. All right. Wow. Took me half the afternoon to get that. In the the eighth year of his reign, so at 16 years old, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. I have that underlined. This is one of my, uh, of many, you know, favorite references to God working in a powerful way through young people. I love to see this. While he was 16 years old, and the Holy Spirit even emphasizes to us, it's as if he wants us to, to see it. While he was still young, he began to seek God. When he was just 16 years old, 
I mean, now the common tendency, you know, I've raised a few teenagers, and the common tendency of all of us when we're in our teenage years and kind of the worldly peer pressures is usually that that's a real struggle with kind of being a very self-serving time, right? You want to kind of explore things and check things out and test in the waters and rebel in a little bit. And, and how wonderful, the Holy Spirit says, while he was still young. As he didn't have to go, we always say, sow his oats and do his thing, and, and I'll, I'll come and check God out later on once— while he was 16, that's a tough age. While he was 16, while he was still young, he started seeking God. Something moved in his heart by the Spirit of the Lord. Again, talk about the sovereign move of God, just his grace. Something stirred in the heart of this young man, and he started saying, you know what? I'm interested in God. I want to know God. I want to pursue a relationship with God. I feel like that that God is calling me to something, and he began at 16 years old. Man, how wonderful to see that, to see someone 14, 15, 16, 17 years old starting to seek God already, having a heart for God, wanting to pursue a relationship with God, something very wonderful and unusual that while he was still young, would to God that we would see more of that. Would to God that we would see more 16-year-olds and individuals while they're still young beginning to seek God and that we'd encourage young people toward that. And we believe that for young people, that we believe that the younger generation, teenagers, junior high, high school students, that they can really be passionate about God. And something really marvelous happens when God gets a hold of a heart at a young age. Something really fantastic, really fantastic can happen with that kind of potential and, and just the passions that they have. And so, again, 16 years old, while he's still young, he begins to seek God. And then in the 12th year of his reign, that is when he now 20 years old, four years later, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images and the carved images and the molded images. So from 16 to 20, he's seeking God. He's praying. He's probably seeking to understand the word of God. He's trying to get to know God, develop a relationship with God, pursuing God in a personal way. And then when he hits 20 years old, he says, you know what? I need to start serving the Lord. I need to start making my life useful for God. And he wants to take his life and be effective for God now. And he actually begins, it says, to purge the land of all of the idolatry and all of the immoral practices that the nation was engaged in because of his father and his grandfather before him. And he says, you know what, all these evil things, I want to do what I can with my position and my opportunity and power as the king to to get rid of this stuff. And he goes through this purging process throughout Judah and Jerusalem, trying to rid the land of those things that are not good, just letting God use his life now. Again, how beautiful. 16, seeking God, 20-year-old young man, using his life to honor God, to serve God's purposes. And just a beautiful, marvelous thing. God, give us more Josiahs. What a a wonderful thing to see happening here. Verse 4 describes what he did. It says, they broke down the altars, of the Baals and his presence. And notice the language, again, it's, it's picturesque to purposely indicate the, the real passion in what he's doing. He broke down the altars of Baal. And the incense altars, which were above it, he cut down. And the wooden images, many of them, again, as we said before, were, were perverse uh, type images, like just you know mo- modern-day pornography only in statues and open places. He was destroying these things, getting rid of them. The molded images, he broke in pieces, and he made dust of them. So notice, he didn't just break them. He ground them up into powder and scattered it all over the graves of those who sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones, it says, of the priests. Now, these were not the the good or godly priests, these were the evil priests, the false priests and priestesses who were leading the people into these idolatrous practices of Baal and uh, Ashtoreth and the other gods that were foreign deities. It says, and he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting, verse 5, is it describes him burning the bones, that is, of these priests, these false priests and evil priests that had died, burning their bones on the altars. He's doing this out of just passion for the Lord and wanting to rid the land of evil. 
What's interesting, if you don't have a note in your Bible there, you might want to jot in 1 Corinthians or 1 Kings, excuse me, chapter 13. And what is basically transpiring here is Josiah, whether knowingly or unknowingly, I'm going to guess maybe unknowingly, is fulfilling a prophecy that was made about his life specifically from 1 Kings 13, verse 2, from over 300 years prior to this time. Over 300 years ago, about 325 years ago, a prophet came in the days of Jeroboam and proclaimed that a young man who would be born, Josiah, would burn the bones of idolatrous priests on the very altar that Jeroboam built that was an idolatrous altar. Again, amazing. God, 300 plus years prior to the life of Josiah coming into existence, God said, I know this child will be born. I know he'll be a male. I know what his name will be. And I know what his activities and ministries will be and the things that he will do as a part of his life. And God spoke of that life 300 plus years before it ever even was conceived and came into existence because God's an all-knowing God. But it also shows how much God values life. Because 300 years before a life existed, God said, I already know that life will exist 300 years from now. And I have the name and the plans and the purposes and things that I'm going to do. And wow, thank goodness Josiah's life came into existence. Look how God used Josiah just as a young man. The incredible things that took place through his life. Here he is fulfilling a prophecy uh, God made 300 years before his life even came into existence. And now he's doing the very things that God said and predicted he would. Verse 6 says, And so he did in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon as far as Naphtali. That's all the way as far north around the Sea of Galilee there in Israel. So he's not just content to do it where he's at in Judah and Jerusalem in the south. He's doing this purge all the way up through the whole nation into the northern part of Israel and all around, it says. Verse 7, And when he had broken down the altars and the wooden images... And he had beaten the carved images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. He then returned to Jerusalem. So pretty passionate, this purging process of what is evil and what's dishonoring to God, the things that were displeasing to the Lord. He purged and rid the land of it. And he did it very, very thoroughly. I mean, grinding this stuff to powder to make sure nobody would return to these things. So it reminds me of uh, Paul's uh, words in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, where Paul says to us there that we're to make no provision for the flesh. And this is the idea here. He didn't just break things down and set them aside in a garage because he knew human nature. If I just break these things in half and set them aside in the garage, then people's sinful temptations will arise again. And when they desire to participate in the same evil practices, they'll go to the garage and they'll take it out and they'll put it back together, and they'll jump right back into the same sinful carnal activities. He said, no, the way to deal with wrong behavior is to utterly destroy any pathway to ever return to it. That's why he grinds these things to powder so that nobody ever returns to these evil practices. He cuts off the avenue to go back into the same evil practices. That's what the Bible means when it tells us, make no provision for the flesh. A lot of times the reason why we end up entering into things of the flesh or our sinful natures, what we mean when we say that, the reason why we do these things is because we make provisions for it. We make opportunities to engage in sinful activity. And then I just, I don't know why. I, I, I don't know why. Why did I get drunk again? Well, because you left a six pack in your refrigerator. I don't understand what, I mean, why did we end up struggling sexually again well because you put yourself in positions and scenarios you should not have put yourself in i don't understand if you never would have went there and, and been alone together and away from if you wouldn't have made a provision for the sinful activity you wouldn't have been able to participate in the sinful activity so you don't make provisions if, if i look if i make a provision for myself to do something wrong nine times out of ten i'm going to do what's wrong Maybe you're not as evil as I am, but that's my nature. <laughs> my flesh, if it has the opportunity to sin, is probably going to engage in sin nine times out of ten. 
because that's what we're drawn towards. And when the opportunity is there, it's more difficult. So one of the best ways you can help yourself with that is you just you grind stuff to powder. You don't you cut off avenues. You stay away from a highway. You just, you just steer clear. You don't make opportunities for that. You make practical decisions and choices to purge and remove opportunity to do what's wrong from your life. And when you do that, it has a very helpful effect to not allow yourself to return and to re-engage in those things. You just got to be proactive and really intentional about it. Uh, and it's a very wise way to do this. And so here, this young man, again, who's being moved by God, by the power of his spirit. Again, this is a 20-year-old young, young man. And he's got this kind of wisdom from the spirit to say, look, we, I got to cut off avenues. And again, just great wisdom for God's spirit working through a 20-year-old to make those kind of decisions. Well, verse 8, it says, and then in the 18th year of his reign, so he's now how old? 26 years old, so still quite young. In, when he's 26 years old, in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the temple, he then sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, Masaiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. So now at this point, his heart, notice, turns to the house of the Lord. Now you can really tell that the work of God's spirit is happening through this young man's life because now you can see he starts to really have a heart for the house of God. He wants to repair the house of the Lord because it's in disarray and and it's been damaged in many ways because of the neglect and the abuse of the house of God because of his father Ammon and somewhat through Manasseh, his grandfather's reign as well. And he says, you know what? We need to make things right in God's house again. We need to repair that which helps us to worship God. And he wants to restore and repair what has been ruined that is hindering the people from being able to properly worship God. And you can tell when God's spirit is really at work in someone's heart in a lot of different ways. But I think this is one of the real clear ways that you can tell God's spirit's really at work in someone's heart is they begin to take a real interest in the house of God, in the things of God. Their heart's inclined to want to worship. They're interested in the things of God's house and what would happen in God's house. And there begins to be this strong interest. And he says, look, he says, these men go out. I want you to start repairing God's house. Get this back in order. Restore the worship life. Verse 9, it says, And when they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites, who kept the doors, had gathered from the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim, and from all the remnant of Israel and all Judah and Benjamin, and which they had brought back to Jerusalem. So there's notice accounting of the money here. You'll notice the good stewardship. They're utilizing these funds now to do repairs at God's house. And they put, it says, verse 10, the money in the hand of the foreman who had oversight of the house of the Lord. And they gave it to the workmen who worked in the house of the Lord to repair and to restore the house. And then they, in turn, Verse 11, gave it to the actual craftsmen and the builders to buy hewn stone and timber for beams and to floor the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. So you notice there's, there's real integrity utilized here in this money that was being utilized in the purposes of God's house. It's going from the high priest, it says, then to the hand of the foreman who had oversight over the repair and restoration job. And then from there, they then, keeping good accounting, deliver it directly to the foreman, to, I mean, to the craftsmen themselves and the builders to actually purchase the materials, the stone and the wood, to actually begin this restoration process of the temple of God that was in disrepair. Verse 12, it says, and the men did the work Faithfully, I love that statement there, verse 12. The men did the work faithfully. You know, anything that we're going to do, and especially if we're going to do for God, we should do faithfully. That is, we should do it thoroughly. We should do it well. We should do it in a way that we're dependable and reliable, that we're committed, that we carry things through. The Bible even tells us in the New Testament there, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. And he's referring to spiritual stewardship, our stewardship of the gospel message, the message of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that people are sinful and that they're separated from God because of their sin, and that their sin's not forgiven. They'll be separated from God eternally in a place called hell. But yet God in his love sent Jesus to reconcile that problem, that Jesus came to live the sinless life we could not, and then to die on the cross to take the punishment that we deserve for our sins sacrificially and rose from the dead. And now the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But the people have to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And that it's a free gift by grace through faith, not of works. And it's something that is offered to mankind, but mankind must believe that and respond to it. They must believe they're sinful, believe Jesus is the Savior, and that they need Jesus to save them. And when they receive that, they experience forgiveness of sins and eternal life and a spiritual birth and a relationship with God. And and God's saying to us as Christians, that's a stewardship. That's a spiritual eternal stewardship, the mystery of the gospel message that's been entrusted to us. And we should utilize that stewardship faithfully. We're stewards of all the things of God's kingdom, of the spiritual life. He entrusts something that's precious and valuable to us, and we get to work for the Lord. But when we work for the Lord, he says, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. So whatever aspect of stewardship you get to exercise in the ministry of the gospel as one of the Lord's servants in his church, outside of the church, whatever form of ministry you get to do, whatever you do for the Lord, whenever you do that work, Do it faithfully. Look, you may not be talented. I understand that. I'm right there with you. You may not be intelligent. I really understand that. I'm right there with you. You may lack a lot of things, but there's something that we all have equally. You can be faithful. You can be faithful. If you commit to it, follow through with it. If you do it, do it well, do it thoroughly, and give your absolute best to it. You do it faithfully. That's all God asks of us, but it's what he requires of us to do our work faithfully. And these individuals, these craftsmen, again, what are they doing? It says they're they're hewing stone and they're they're laying floors in the house of God, but the men did the work faithfully. Oh, well, it's just, we're, just, we're just painting some walls here. We're just cutting some. No, this is for God. And they did it faithfully. The men did the work faithfully. Lord, help us to do what we do for him faithfully. And the overseers as well, verse 12, it says, were Jahath and Obadiah the Levites and the sons of Merai and Zechariah and Meshulam. Some names there for your kids if you decide to have them in the future. The sons of the Kohathites to supervise. So notice you had workers and you also had supervisors. Others of the Levites, all of whom were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers. I like that. Notice there are some people that all their job was was they were burden bearers. <laughs> what's your job? I'm just a burden bearer. What, what's your skill? I carry stuff. <laughs> they put burdens on my back. That's what I do. I'm a burden bearer. That's all I do. I hold things and I carry things. Everybody's needed for something. There is no insignificant service in the things of God's kingdom. Whether you are a burden bearer or as verse 12 says there, someone who is skillful with an instrument, a musician, a singer, whatever it is. Like a body has many parts. The New Testament says we are all members of the body. We all have a function, whether you're a thumb or an eye or an ear or an or whatever part. We're all individually members of one another, interdependent. We all have a role. As, as we do what we're supposed to do, it contributes to the whole and the body's able to function in here. There were all different things. Some were supervising, some were burden bearers, some were musicians, some had skills you know, with craftsmanship, and everybody was doing their part. And God was working and doing something wonderful as each one was doing their part. I mean, I, to me, it's even interesting if you read and recognize verse 12, it says, those Levites who were skillful with instruments of music were over the burden bearers and were overseers of all who did the work in any kind of service. Now, to me, that's, I almost find that a little bit humorous. Basically, you're talking about there were a bunch of skilled guitar players who were the overseers of all the craftsmen and all the workers. So imagine, you got basically guitar players serving as foremen uh, over the guys who were carpenters. And, and it just must have been quite a unique thing there. 
But everybody's just trying to be sensitive to the Lord and, and do their part in the process. It says the Levites, some of them were also scribes and some officers and gatekeepers. Again, the scribes were those who wrote out by hand and recorded the word of God. The gatekeepers were sort of those who managed the security of people going in and out of the gates of the Lord's house. And when they brought out the money that was in, brought into the house of the Lord, verse 14, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. And Hilkiah answered to Shaphan the scribe and said, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now, notice what's happening here. They're just kind of cleaning up all the rubbish in God's house and getting out things that don't belong there and things are in disrepair. And as they're doing this, like a renovation project of a building that's just in disrepair and all dilapidated, in the midst of that, Hilkiah the priest, it says, finds a book and he realizes that he found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses, a reference to the Torah, or probably likely the first five books of what we refer to as our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It could be just a reference to only the book of Deuteronomy or perhaps those first five books of the Old Testament. The point is he finds a copy of the word of God in the house of God. In the midst of it, he discovers the word of the Lord. He finds the scripture and he says, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And it's like he's surprised about it. Uh, whoa, I found a Bible in church. And that tells you the condition of things at that time. I mean, he's, he's just, wow, I can't believe. Guess what I found? I found, I dusted it off. What is this here under this, all this rubbish and these, and he, wow, we found God's word. And there's this rediscovery of the word of God. And look, whenever there is a move of God's spirit, something special that the spirit of the Lord is doing, that is always a characterizing mark of a spiritual revival among God's people who've turned away from him and things have become a mess. That's always a characterizing mark when God is doing a work of restoration among the house of God, among the people of God, is there is a rediscovery of God's word. And people begin to, again, after neglect and setting aside and kind of just dismissing the value of God's word, begin to all of a sudden rediscover the wonder of God's word. And people, wow, we found the word of God. Look at this. Look what we discovered. I mean, shouldn't that be what's always present in God's house? Kind of a sad thing when you recognize that sometimes people have to rediscover God's word. It should be the prominent thing in God's house. Verse 15 says, And Hilkiah then gave the book to Shaphan, and Shaphan carried the book and brought it to the king, bringing the king the word, saying, All that was committed to your servants, they are doing. So he goes back to give report to the king. And the first thing he says, Look, we just want you to know, king, everything you've committed to your servants. They're doing it. They are faithfully following your orders. And I look at verse 16 there and I think what a great description of hopefully at times what can be said to our king as his servants, that our king Jesus could hear about us all that was committed to your servants they are doing. Because we're the Lord's servants and he gives us things to do as well as we talked about a few minutes ago. And how wonderful it would be for our Lord, our King, to be able to hear, Hey, King, we just want you to know all that your servants have been committed to doing, that, that they're carrying it out. They're faithfully doing. You know, what has the Lord given you to do? Uh, what has the Lord committed to you? And hopefully you're doing it. You're faithfully serving him. They say, verse 17, And they have gathered the money that was found in the house of the Lord and delivered it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. And then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. So he now begins to read from this book, which is the word of God. And thus it happened when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes. Again, in that ancient culture and among the Mideastern people, they were very expressive. 
And so when they would rend their garment, it was a picture. As they tore their clothes, it was an expression of, of grief or astonishment. And this picture is his expression of conviction. As he hears the word of God read to him, the law of the Lord, his response is he is cut to the heart inwardly and he rends his garment as a way of saying, oh my goodness, as he's astonished by what he hears. The conviction of the spirit comes over him as he hears God's word speaking to his heart here. And that's what's taking place. Now, what is beautiful to keep in mind At this point, Josiah is just hearing the word of God because it's just been discovered. Now, keep in mind, when did he start seeking God? When he was only 16 years old. He didn't even have access to the word of God. And yet he was seeking God. He was praying and he was saying, God, if you're real, show me. God, I want to know. If you're real, reveal yourself to me. I want to know who you are. I'm willing to know you. I'm willing to serve you, but reveal yourself to me. And I see in some ways, here's God saying, you asked, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And now God allows him to be exposed directly to the word of God and to be able to hear it for himself. And when he hears God's word, notice he is strongly convicted in his heart. It says that he tears his clothes as an act of conviction. Notice the power of God's word when he hears it. When he hears the word of God, because it's alive, it's very strong in its effectiveness to bring conviction to his heart. Hebrews 4.12 tells us of the word of God, for the word of God is living and powerful. Now, again, this book's living. The idea is it's alive because it has the life and the breath of God breathed into it because God has breathed his life into his word. And so, therefore, the life of God being breathed into the word of God causes it to be powerful. It says Hebrews 4.12, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Again, that is the power of the word of God. It's not like reading a newspaper or a magazine or a post of something online or any book that we can read with black and white ink. It is a living and powerful word because it is the very word of God breathed out with the life of God, divine power and life in it. And that's why when we read it, it's like a sharp two-edged sword. And perhaps I hope you have all experienced in your life that reality of it's like God's word, like a sword just goes into your heart. And it's like God just does surgery on your heart. He just lays your heart open and he begins to distinguish your thoughts and the intents of your heart. And God begins to reveal things to you as his word is doing this living and powerful thing, speaking to us in powerful ways. Well, as he hears this, likely what he is hearing that's concerning him is from Deuteronomy chapter 28, when God spoke in Deuteronomy 28 of the curses that would come upon the people if they rebelled against him. God said, if you honor my ways and follow my paths, all these blessings will come upon you as my people. But if you turn away from me and worship other gods and rebel against my statutes and my will, then all these curses you're going to bring upon yourself. And no doubt as he hears these things, this causes great concern within him. That's why he tears his clothes because it says, verse 20, the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan and Abdon, Shaphan, the scribe and Azariah, the servant of the king, saying, verse 21, go inquire of the Lord for me. And for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So as he hears probably Deuteronomy 28, all of a sudden he is gripped with the fearful reality that there is a huge gap between what God said they are supposed to do and how they're to live as a nation and follow him and the way that they had been living. And he realizes, oh my goodness, there's a huge disparity between what God wants and what pleases God and all the evil, rebellious, and sinful things we've been doing as a nation. We are under the judgment of God. We deserve wrath. We deserve God's punishment. It would be right for us. And he says, that's why in verse 20, he says, our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord according to all that's written in this book. 
and he says, this is not good. He says, go inquire, he says, get word. What do we do? Go find out what we're supposed to do in response to our condition that we're in. So verse 22 says, so Hilkiah and those of the king had appointed went to Huldah the prophetess. Notice not only are there male prophets, but this was a female who in the Old Testament had a prophetic gift to speak on God's behalf, a word from the Lord. Prophecy is not gender specific. The wife of Shalom, the son of Tokoth, the son of Harris, keeper of the wardrobe. For she dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter. That seems to be a quadrant of Jerusalem that they were living in. And they spoke to her to that effect. So they come to her, hold of the prophetess, because apparently she's known as someone who has a sensitive heart to the Lord. She knows the word of God. She's in tune with God. And she was someone who would speak forth the heart of God and on God's behalf. Now, here's what's interesting. At this time, Jeremiah the prophet is already conducting his ministry. So it's not like you know, Huldah was the only one to go to. Jeremiah the prophet was prophesying at this time. Zephaniah was prophesying at this time. But yet, whether it was because of just proximity and closeness or that that's just who they knew, Huldah the prophetess, someone who may not have been as popular and famous, but she still knew the Lord. She knew his word. And they knew that if they went to her, she would speak faithfully what God wanted them to hear. And she had this gifting. They go to Huldah the prophetess. They tell her what the king has just heard and his great concern and that the king wants to know what to do. He's convicted of his sin. He's convicted of the condition of the nation. What do we do? They speak to that effect to her. And she answered, thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. Now, isn't that interesting? Who's the man? The king. Now, this shows you, first of all, she speaks on God. She said, go tell the potentate. Go tell his most excellency. She says, no, tell the man. He's just a man. He may be a king, but before God, he's just a man. Go tell the man, she says, who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring calamity on this place and its inhabitants and all the curses that are written in the book, which they have read before the king of Judah. In the words, judgment is coming. It's unavoidable still at this time. Because they have forsaken me, God says, verse 25, and burn incense to other gods. They may provoke me to anger with the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. In other words, it would be unjust of God not to carry through with punishment at this point. He wouldn't be a righteous God because of what they did. Judgment had already been determined and God could not turn it back against the nation nationally. But as for the king of Judah, him personally, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart, verse 27, was tender, sensitive to God, and you humbled yourself. Notice he chose to humble himself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, as you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I bring on this place and its inhabitants. So they brought back word to the king. So the king gets word from Huldah to the prophetess God's judgment must come upon the nation, but because you had a tender heart and you were responsive to the conviction of God's voice to you when God spoke to you personally and you humbled yourself, he says, God has taken note of that. God saw your heart. How wonderful to know that God sees the individual heart. I love how it says there in verse 27 that the Lord says, I also have heard you. In other words, I've heard you personally. God knows personally what's going on in your heart. God hears your prayer personally. Never think that God just categorizes you together with everyone. God cares about every individual soul, and he deals with people individually according to the condition of their heart. And he says the nation's going to be judged, but you will not experience that judgment because you humbled yourself, because you chose to have a repentant heart to turn away from your sin and to seek to be responsive to what my word spoke to you. 
So verse 29, the king being concerned for the rest, it says, sent and gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and the people, great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. I love this king. He, he pulls everybody together. He's, Look, I just had a convicting, powerful spiritual experience in my life. Gather everybody together. And as a national leader, he gets up and he just starts reading the word of God to people. And he says, you've got to know what God's word says. And imagine if that happened the next state of the union. Listen, I had a spiritual experience with God. The state of the union is not strong. But let me tell you what the Bible says. I mean, I mean, just I'm not saying that the state of the union is not strong, but I mean, how wonderful would that be? If, I mean, imagine something like that happening. He's now reading himself personally. It says in the hearing of the people, the words of, of God from the scripture to them. And verse 31 says, and the king stood in his place and he made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord, to keep his commandments and testimonies and statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. So he makes a personal commitment to God publicly before the people. He says, today, as I read you these words, I am making a public covenant, a commitment to follow the Lord and to obey his word with all my heart and all my soul. I'm deciding today to follow the Lord publicly, openly. And I'm going to do that by obeying his word with all my heart and all my soul. What a beautiful experience here happening with Josiah as he's now standing before the people as their national leader. In verse 32, it says, And he made all who were present there in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Thus Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country that belonged to the children of Israel and made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not depart from following the Lord God of their followers. So he makes a personal decision to take a stand for God publicly, and then he beckons, more than that, it says he exhorts, he made. It says he made all the people make a commitment, it seems to some degree as well. He says he made the people, verse 32, take a stand and diligently serve. And again, ultimately, we can't force someone to follow the Lord. But boy, I tell you, something really wonderful at times of just, you know, kind of exhorting others. Look, you need to take a stand. You need to take a stand for the Lord. I took a stand for the Lord. Now it's your turn, Josiah is saying. As a great, you take a stand for the Lord now. You decide to follow him. You decide to obey him. And it says the, the people responded. They were moved by this exhortation. Well, why don't we literally stand? We'll end there for tonight, and let's pray, and we'll enter back into a time of worship.